Today we are continuing to look at a psalm uh, each Sunday during the summer. Today we're looking at Psalm 66, and so please open your Bibles to Psalm 66. Um, Each of the 15 or so psalms leading up to Psalm 66 were all written by King David, but if you look at the the, the title that, that, that's below the, the ESV heading, but the title in your Bible that says, To the Choir Master, a song, a psalm, that's actually in the original Hebrew text. You'll notice that, that we're not told who the author is. We're not told uh, the context of the psalm. But all we know is that this psalm was written to be sung in corporate worship for the people of God. What we see from reading the psalm is that it's a psalm of praise. That it begins with, the psalmist calling for all the peoples of the earth to shout and to sing for joy as they give God the glorious praise of which he is most worthy. So in one sense, Psalm 66 is a psalm about worship, specifically about the glorious, weighty, reverent, joyful worship in spirit and truth that our great God deserves. However, in another sense, Psalm 66 is a psalm about God's grace and what God has done for his covenant people throughout the history of redemption, and what God has done for individuals like us, individual sinners like us, in our own salvation. Old Testament scholar uh, Derek Kidner titled Psalm 66, God of all, of many, and of one. And in many ways, that's, ex- that's really the structure of this psalm. We see it like working as a funnel, if you will, begins with th- this call for all the earth to sing and praise God, Then there's this call to to come and see what God has done for the many, for his covenant people throughout the history of redemption. Then it ends with the psalmist saying, come and hear what God has done specifically for me, for my soul, and how he has saved me and been been gracious to me. Okay, so with that structure in mind, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Read Psalm 66. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us, You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals, With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, 
and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at Psalm 66 under three headings. And the, the headings could be as short as three words, sing, see, and hear. But if I expand them out a little bit, it's seeing the glory of God's glorious praise, all the earth, see what God has done for his covenant people, and hear what God has done for me, what he's done for my soul. Remember, that's the, the flow of, of the psalm. It begins very broad with all the earth, and it goes to God's covenant people, and then it narrows down to the psalmist. So first, seeing the glory of God's name, all the earth. And, and this psalm begins with a call to worship in verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Right, a clear call to worship. In fact, it's very, very similar to the opening verse of Psalm 100, which is one of the most common call to worships that we use here. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So Psalm 66 begins with a call to worship. And then in verse 2, goes beyond just a general call to worship to a call to glorious praise and worship. It focuses on the content of our worship. Look at verse 2. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. The psalmist says the, the content of our praise should be God's name, the glory of his name, meaning his, his character, his attributes, all the glorious things he is, and all the glorious things he has done. The, the Protestant reformer John Calvin said, the psalmist is not satisfied with our declaring God's glory moderately and insists that we should celebrate his goodness in some measure proportionally to his, its excellence. Or put another way, because God has revealed to us the glory of his name, the praise that we render to God should be glorious. He's glorious. So our praise should be glorious. Should be weighty. Should be magnificent because he's magnificent. You know, one commentator says, glory has connotations of weightiness, dignity, magnificence, and beauty. Glorious worship is exuberant, never half-hearted. It's awesome, never sentimental. It's brilliant, not careless. It points to God, not to the speakers. It fits its great object. It seeks to be as glorious as the one it praises. So worship should be never trivial, never pretentious. Whereas the psalmist says in verse 2, sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. And, and that's our goal each and every Sunday. We enter into this sanctuary and between the call to worship and the benediction, it's our goal, our aim to worship God in spirit and truth as we exalt our triune God in, in glorious, joyful, reverent praise and worship. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this because I think that this psalm lends our, us to thinking about worship and what we do here in this sanctuary Sunday after Sunday. And what I'm about to say, it's not meant to be provocative, okay, so just hang with me. But our top priority when we gather in this sanctuary is not primarily to evangelize the lost, although that matters, and I believe it happens 
during the worship service. But that's not our top priority. Our top priority is also not that we would get something out of the sermon. Although, Lord willing, that happens. That we learn and we grow and we mature spiritually. But our top priority as we gather each and every Lord's Day is for the purpose of worshiping and exalting, exalting our God with the glorious praise of which he is most worthy. Although we believe that experiencing and witnessing glorious, joyful, reverent, heartfelt worship in spirit and truth is one of the ways that, that, that unbelievers do come to know and understand the gospel. They do, they do come to understand their, own, their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And Lord willing, as the gospel is, is sung and read and prayed and proclaimed and even explained and as, we, as we partake of the sacraments, that, that unbelievers also, they experience the welcome and the invitation of God to come to him for salvation, to trust in the Savior that he has provided, to trust in Christ. And, and we praise God whenever that happens. And, and we believe that we will get something out of our time between the call to worship and the benediction as we read the Bible and sing the Bible and pray the Bible and hear the Bible preached and experience the, the Bible through the sacraments. But our goal is, as Psalm 66 verse 2 says, to sing the glory of his name and to give to him glorious praise. So let me ask you, is, is that why you are here this morning? What if that really became your goal each and every Sunday morning? What if even ahead of time, even on Saturday, you began to pray and you began to prepare and you began to plan to enter this place to worship God in spirit and truth as we exalt our triune God with glorious, joyful, reverent praise and worship? It would make a difference. And I would dare say it could, it could make all the difference. Now look at verse 3 in this psalm. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. So how awesome are your deeds? Now, I know you know that whenever we use the word awesome in everyday language, we're talking about something that's great, wonderful, exciting, something that's cool, something that's wonderful. Well, that's not what awesome means in verse 3. Here, awesome means terrifying or terrible. The, the King James Version translates verse 3 as, Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Okay, so look again at our translation, verse 3. How awesome are your deeds, so great is your power, that your enemies come cringing to you. Do you see what he's saying? That in response to God's awesome and terrifyingly great power, God's enemies cringe before him. And, and that Hebrew word that's translated cringing means to submit to grow lean, to be made small, to be vanquished, defeated, to be cut down to size, if you will. Commentator Alan Ross says, God's mighty deeds strike fear in the hearts of people who hear of them or witness them. Moreover, they are obliged to acknowledge that because of the abundance or greatness of God's strength, his enemies come cringing to him. The verb has the sense of deceive, and it refers to an unwilling homage or a feigned allegiance. The enemies were forced to submit and did so reluctantly. Even if they didn't want to submit, that because of God's terrifyingly great and wonderful and awesome power and might and deeds, 
They were forced to submit to God, that he's that sovereign, he's that great, he's that, he's that powerful. And, and to me, that brings to mind what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, that therefore God the Father has highly exalted him, that's Christ, and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's everyone. That's all. All knees would bow. Speaking both of, of God's people, those of us who love Christ and trust in him for our salvation, but also for God's enemies as well. You know, we who are followers of Christ, we, we gladly, joyfully bow our knees today. But there will be a time when what Psalm 63, 66 verse 3 says will be true of all in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even if they're forced to submit and bow the knee, one day all will. And yet it's our great joy and privilege today to, to love, to trust, to, to bow the knee, to bend our hearts before the Savior who, who lived for us and bled for us and died for us and rose from the grave to save us. And then we see in verse 4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now, the verb tenses here, they seem to point to the future, whenever this promise will come to fulfillment, right? And one of the reasons why we have Idar and Aliyah here as missionaries to Kazakhstan is because currently all the earth does not worship God. And so there's a need for, for missions, there's a need for the gospel to be proclaimed and for, for the gospel to be sent forth and for missionaries to be supported and be prayed for and to be sent out and to be encouraged and, and so forth. But what Psalm 66 verse 4 is talking about is a future time at the end of the age whenever all the earth will praise and worship God. He will have worshipers gathered to himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. Speaking about a time that we, that we read about in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So this first section of Psalm 66, it starts out broad, as broad as, as the whole earth. You know, seeing the glorious praise of His name of which he is most worthy, all the earth. And then the second section narrows down a little bit to, to come and see what God has done for his covenant people. And so look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is, he is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Well, what deeds does the psalmist have in mind? Well, look at verse 6. He has turned the sea into dry land. They pass through the river on foot. So he's turned the sea into dry land. These pass through the river on foot. See, the sea refers to the Red Sea. The river refers to the Jordan River. So do you understand what the psalmist has in mind? He's describing the events of the Exodus story, the, which is arguably the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. So the psalmist begins with the parting of the Red Sea, which allowed the people of God to escape the pursuit of Pharaoh's army after the ten plagues, after the Passover. And then he mentions passing through the river on foot, which seems to refer to the people of God crossing the Jordan River, which God also parted in Joshua chapter 3 as they entered the promised land 
after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So as one commentator puts it, Matthew Henry comments that the miracle of the Red Sea crossing under Moses was repeated in the Jordan River crossing under Joshua for this, to show that God has the same power to finish the salvation of his people that he had to begin it. It's the same power to finish the salvation of his people that he had to begin it. So put another way, for you, for me, the God who saved you by his grace has the same power to bring all of his people all of the way home. Okay, and with that in mind, look again at verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. Notice the pronouns. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. Okay, notice that transition from they to we. And remember, we're not certain about um, the author or the date of Psalm 66, but it stands to reason that the events of the Exodus, they took place centuries before this psalm is written. So notice and think about okay, what the psalmist is saying here in verse 6. So he's not simply retelling the Exodus story merely as a history lesson. He's not merely saying, hey guys, don't forget what God did in the past. I mean, there's great value in remembering and never forgetting what God has done for his people in the past, but he's saying more than that. He's not merely giving them a history lesson. He's not merely saying, don't forget what God did in the Exodus. You see, the psalmist is saying, their God, the God of, of the Israelites in the Exodus, is our God. He's saying, they were God's covenant people, we are God's covenant people. The psalmist is saying, their story is our story, right? They passed through the river on foot, and there did we rejoice in him. It's as if we're there, because he's our God. They're our people. This is our story. And so what that means for you, dear Christian, today is that their God, the psalmist God, is also your God. That they were God's covenant people, you are God's covenant people. Their story is also your story. Pastor Richard Phillips says the point is that the saving works of God so impact everyone who looks to him for salvation that the Bible's history is as real to us as if we were actually present in the past. In fact, because of our solidarity with all of God's covenant people, their story really is our own. Or put another way, God's faithfulness to his people throughout redemptive history is a reminder to us of God's faithfulness to us, his people today. That, that your God still provides for and delivers his people in amazing ways. Your God still sovereignly saves his people. That the God that you pray to, the God you trust in, the God you look to for salvation is not any less powerful, or any less great, or any less sovereign, or any less awesome, or any less loving, or any less faithful to his people today than he was back then. So friends, don't, don't lose sight of the fact, don't forget, don't doubt that you pray to the same God who parted the Red Sea. To the same God who brought his people through the wilderness to the same God who parted the Jordan River and led them into the promised land. And that's the same God who loves you enough to send his son to save you. So don't overlook that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't, don't ever forget that. Okay, but look again at verses 6 and 7. 
He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And notice he talks about you know, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. You know, last Sunday, Axel reminded us from Psalm 121 that, that God, the God who watches and keeps Israel, his people, never slumbers or sleeps. And here we're told in the very next psalm that, yes, God never slumbers or sleeps. He even watches over the nations. He even watches over those who are rebellious, as well as his own people. That he hasn't lost control of even the rebellious nations. Um, another quote from Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner is, the crossing of the Red Sea and of the Jordan proved decisively God's power and will to save his people and judge the rebellious. But then the psalmist continues recounting what God has done for his people in verses 8 and 9. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. So the psalmist has been talking about an example of God's great and awesome and terrible and wonderful saving power in the past, in the Exodus. Now in verses 8 and 9, he moves to God's preserving power, his keeping power in the more recent past. Specifically, even and especially during times of trials and times of testing. And so look at verses 10 to 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. There's a whole lot here in these verses, but notice that the psalmist says that God brought his people through a variety of tests and trials for a purpose, for the purpose of refining their faith like silver is refined, trying their faith like silver is tried, purifying their faith much the same way that silver is purified. And that's something that we see taught throughout the scriptures. You know, two of the clearer places are in the New Testament. In, in James 1, as well as 1 Peter 1, in James 1 we read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? That none of us would choose to sign up for trials of various kinds, but what God's Word says is to consider it pure joy. Why? Because God has a purpose in those hard times. He has a purpose in whatever trial you're going through. That's also what the psalmist says. It's also what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. The psalmist talks about silver being refined. Here Peter's talking about gold being refined may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so look back to Psalm 66, verses 10 to 12. The psalmist says that, that God brought the people into a net. It's as if God's the hunter or the fisherman, and, and, and he's caught the people in the net, has them just where he wants them, like birds or fish caught in a net. And, and isn't that exactly how trials often feel? You know, we feel stuck. We feel trapped. You know, we can't immediately figure a way out. We can't see a way out, but we, we want to get out. Well, God uses trials like that in the lives of his people 
He did back then, he does today, to refine us, to mature us, to produce steadfastness and maturity in us. He, he always has and he still uses trials in our lives today. Look at verse 11. It says that God laid a crushing burden on their backs. I mean, isn't that exactly what trials so often feel like? We, we feel the weight of the burden. We feel the pressure of the burden. And sometimes it's brought upon us because of our own sin. Sometimes it's brought upon us because of the sin of others. Sometimes we can't connect the dots as to exactly why it's happening. But what we know from Psalm 66, from James 1, from 1 Peter 1, from Romans 8, from the whole counsel of God's word, is that God has a purpose even for these difficult trials, these trials of various kinds. Whatever trial you're going through. The psalmist goes on and says that the trials often feel like we're being trampled, right? They're not pleasant. It feels like we're passing through water and fire. But then look at the end of verse 12. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. A place of abundance that literally means a spacious place. A place of overflowing. A place where blessings runneth over. And if that phrase sounds familiar, I'm using it intentionally because the same Hebrew word for uh, place of abundance, we also see it in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, we, we all love to be, to be invited to, place, to, to parties and occasions like that, right? That, that sounds a lot better than trials of various kinds. I mean, we'd much rather say... Count it, you can count it pure joy whenever you're invited to a feast and your cup overflows, as opposed to count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. But the point is, the path to get to this place of abundance and of the cup running over is only through the various trials of life, that there is no other way. The Psalm 66 speaks of trials being like the refining process for silver. Ed Clowney, a former seminary professor, says this, the fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. Or as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it simply, there's no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. See, God permits and even sends trials, pressures, uncertainties, hard times to mature us in our faith by convincing us that our hope does not lie in our circumstances, that our hope lies in Christ, in the redemption that he's accomplished for us, and, and to convince us that we can, that we must trust our good God and his promises always. As uh, John Newton wrote in one of his hymns, His love in times past forbids me to think He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. See, dear Christian, your good and loving and faithful God will never ever leave you in troubles to sink. He can't and He won't. Regardless of the trial you're facing, whether it's a momentary trial, whether it's the type of trial that might last the rest of your life, don't ever doubt God's love for you. 
Never doubt his commitment and his faithfulness to you. You know, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you everything, everything you need, everything you need to sustain you and to get you through even that, that terrible trial of various kinds that you're currently going through. So Psalm 66 tells about singing the glory of God's name, all the earth, seeing what God has done for his covenant people. But then finally, hear, come and hear what God has done for me. And we're going to notice that the pronouns transition from we and our and us to I, my, and me. See, in this final section, the psalmist testifies and bears witness to God's work of grace in his life. And so look at verses 13 to 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now, I know that most of us, maybe all of us, were familiar with offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament, but my, my assumption is that, that at least some of us are like, would, would say, you know, Richard, I don't really understand the difference between the various types of offerings. You know, that I at one time made a mistake and ended up in Leviticus and thought, oh, wow, there's a lot of different uh, types of, of sacrifices and offerings. And I'm just kidding. Leviticus is a great book. Everybody should read it today. Okay, it's a wonderful book. Okay. Here, he's speaking of offering burnt offerings. And what's worth pointing out is that they're the most costly offerings to make. Because the burnt offerings were completely consumed, completely burnt up, turned into smoke. And yet fellowship offerings, thanksgiving offerings, and so forth, sometimes portions of those offerings were preserved for the, the worshiper to eat or even to share with others as a fellowship meal. However, that's not the case with burnt offerings. Uh, the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce says, by its very nature, a burnt offering was more serious signifying something like the complete dedication or consecration of himself to God by the worshiper. Okay, so why such wholehearted dedication and devotion and consecration by the psalmist? Well, he goes on to tell us. Look at verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. Remember, right? It's gone from all the earth, seeing and praise God, to come and, come and see what God's done for his covenant people throughout history. And now he says, let me tell you what God has done for my soul. And here's what he says in verses 17 and 18. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So you see, the psalmist acknowledges that he's a sinner. But he also acknowledges the truth that, that sinners can either cling to their sin or, or they can repent and cling to God and his grace. And what the psalmist says that he has done is that he's chosen to repent and to cling to his God and to accept and cling to the, the mercy and grace that God ex extends to those who trust him. And then look what he writes in verses 19 and 20. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So how, how do you know, how can you know that God has not and he will not reject your prayers? How can you know 
that God has not and will not ever remove his steadfast covenantal love from you? Well, the answer is because of Christ and all that he's accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection. I mean, remember the, the psalmist uses the example of the Exodus to, to show that God has the same power to finish the salvation of his people that he had to begin it. And there's no, there's no, there's no, it's no accident that in Luke's gospel account of Jesus' transfiguration, that Jesus refers to his own death and resurrection, which is coming up, as his exodus. See, in Luke 9, verses 29 and 31, we read, And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the Greek word translated departure is the Greek word exodus. You see, just as God redeemed his people from physical slavery in Egypt through the original exodus, God has redeemed us from spiritual slavery to sin through the second exodus, the ultimate exodus, which Christ accomplished for us through his righteous life, his atoning death, and his glorious and victorious resurrection from the grave. So, but then not only is there the exodus which points forward to salvation in Christ, but there's also the mention of the burnt offerings in Psalm 66. And then to make this clear, you see the psalmist, yes, he, he makes these vows during the time of trial and testing, the difficult time, the time of trouble, that one day he will make these offerings to the Lord. But the psalmist was not saved by offering a burnt offering of bulls and goats. No one was ever saved by merely offering a sacrifice of bulls and goats. doesn't matter how many bulls or goats you offer. doesn't matter how frequently you do it. doesn't matter how sincere you are in doing it. That the blood of animals could not and cannot take away sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God promised he would send a sacrifice who does save sinners. That he would send the Lamb of God who would come to take away and who has come to take away the sins of the world. You see, salvation has always been only through faith in the Savior. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the Savior who was to come, just as we are saved by faith in the Savior who has come and who lived and who bled and who died, who rose from the grave, who ascended to God the Father's right hand and who is coming again. See, the burnt offerings in the entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed forward to Christ and his once-for-all-time sacrifice for sin. So I'm going to read to you one more uh, passage of Scripture, but it's, it's a longer one. And I often read, I've often read part of this to you, but I'm going to read, read a, a larger section from Hebrews 10, beginning in, with verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrificial system never pointed to itself as the ultimate solution. It was always pointing forward to the sacrifice who was to come, to the Savior who was to come. Listen to what we read next in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting from Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then we read in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So do you see, dear Christian, because of all that Christ has done, because of all that Christ has accomplished on your behalf, then we, we, all that we, we can and we should remember and believe and embrace and live out all that we've been looking at in Psalm 66, that you can and you should shout for joy and sing the glory of his name in glorious praise, that you can and you should trust that he will not let your feet slip, that you can and you should trust that he will ultimately bring you out of whatever trial you're in to a place of abundance and blessing. That he will always listen to, hear your prayers. You never have to worry about your prayers being rejected by your heavenly father. And he never ever will, and he can never remove his steadfast, covenantal, saving love from you. Why? Because you've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word for the way that this psalm calls to all the earth, the way that it then calls us to come and see, to remember how you have been faithful to your covenant people. May we never doubt your faithfulness to us, your covenant people today. And we thank you for how this psalm highlights your grace and what you've done for the souls of each and every one of your people here in this sanctuary. Lord, please, impress these truths upon our hearts. And may we, may we be eager to, to say to family members and friends, come, come and hear what God has done for my soul and the grace that he has extended to me in Christ. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.